I'm David Feldman, and this is The Mop-Up. After, uh, after Tesla's stock hit a 52-week low, Forbes reported that Elon Musk was no longer the richest man on the planet. But unlike Forbes, I measure a man's wealth solely by the number of people who love him, which means Elon is now the poorest man on the planet. Elon Musk is now despised. Last week, he got booed at a Dave Chappelle concert. And on Sunday, Musk launched a poll of his followers asking if he should step down as CEO of Twitter. He said he would quit if you wanted him to leave. Well, the results are in today. 50 percent, I'm sorry, 57 percent of his followers said leave. But be careful what you wish for. If Elon Musk does step down, it would thrust Twitter into the dangerously uncharted waters of profitability. All this has been going on while Musk was in Qatar over the weekend enjoying the World Cup with his friend Jared Kushner, which should tell you right there everything you need to know about Elon Musk. He is friends with Jared Kushner. Despite Elon's unconventional lifestyle, multiple children with multiple wives smoking pot on Joe Rogan's podcast, Elon Musk is not a liberal. He is not a libertarian or a liberator. He is a right wing authoritarian, just like Donald Trump. Just like Donald Trump, Musk breaks things like Trump. Musk is a merchant of chaos. He feeds off entropy because that's where financial opportunity thrives. Break things, break the rules. Who cares that self-driving cars are against the law? Offer your Tesla owners a software update that allows them to drive assertively, to tailgate all by themselves without their hands touching the steering wheel. And don't ask for permission. It's better after the damage is done, after people have died, you buy forgiveness. Just like Donald Trump, Elon Musk knows exactly what he's doing. And despite all the publicity and his cadre of hardcore supporters, they are both fooling some of us, but not enough of us, because like Trump, Elon Musk is circling the drain. I'll talk about the January 6th committee a little later on. Most of us are confused by Elon Musk, and that's perfectly understandable because he's slick. But Musk only cares about the bottom line. And the bottom line is Elon Musk is a right-wing bigot who is devious, slippery, and dangerous. Elon Musk's Electric cars don't make him an environmentalist. His Twitter doesn't make him a champion of free speech. His SpaceX doesn't make him a futurist. And his brain chips don't make him a healer. His army of online foot soldiers live vicariously through him. But like Trump's MAGA crowd, Musk's diehard enthusiasts have been duped into being instruments of their own oppression. And you know who gets this? Believe it or not, Joe Biden. Now, I'm not making the case for President Biden, but 
Musk's army of diehard fans, they despise Biden. They want to know why during this year's State of the Union address, Biden left Tesla and Elon Musk out. He didn't mention Tesla or Elon Musk while he was praising America's manufacturers of electric vehicles, you know, like Ford and GM. Why did Biden leave out Tesla during the State of the Union? Last year, when Joe Biden signed an executive order expediting America's transition to electric vehicles, he was surrounded by all the automakers here in America except one, Elon Musk. No mention of Tesla. Why? Why would Joe Biden make an enemy of Tesla, of Elon Musk? Well, I'm going to tell you in a second, and it's going to be a kick in the teeth for those of you who love Elon Musk or think Joe Biden is a doddering fool. But first, I need you to, and let me look at it. Hang on. It's a new one. This is a new subscribe button. Is it working? There it is. Ah, I like that one. This is my new like and subscribe graphic. I, I like that. It's, uh, hey, I have a small little show. The only people who support me are my listeners. And the best way to support me is to like, subscribe and share. So please share this episode on social media and with your friends. For example, if you have a friend who thinks Musk is the greatest of all time, send send this episode to your friend. Also, what do you think about Elon Musk? Talk to me in the comments section below. Wherever you're listening to this podcast or watching, I want you to know I read all the comments and I try to respond. Uh, tell me what you think. I'm curious because whenever I criticize Elon Musk, it's like attacking the National Rifle Association. Muscovites come out of the woodwork to defend him. Again, I read all the comments and I try to respond to as many as possible, especially the ones that make me laugh. Tell me what you think of Musk. Tell me if you think he's a champion of free speech. Do you think he's an environmentalist? OK, I promised to tell you why Joe Biden made an enemy out of Musk, as well as Tesla owners. Why did he make an enemy of Musk followers, of Muscovites, in those two big speeches he gave on electric cars? And I'm going to tell you why he did this. But first, I need you to understand something. Elon Musk is no liberal. He's not a leftist. He's not a centrist. He's not an independent. He is a right wing conservative who last month endorsed Ron DeSantis for president. He also told the American people to vote for Republicans in last month's midterms. Musk relocated from California to Texas. Here is Texas Governor Greg Abbott on CNBC last year telling us just how far to the right Elon Musk is. This is Greg Abbott being asked, do you think your 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 anti-abortion bills are going to be bad for business? Here is the vile governor of Texas, Greg Abbott. 
And this is not slowing down businesses coming to the state of Texas at all. In fact, it is accelerating the process of businesses coming to Texas, particularly, Morgan, interestingly. Uh, they are leaving the very liberal state of California. And I've got to tell you, whether it be Elon Musk, who I talk to frequently, mm-hmm. uh, Elon had to get out of California because in part of the social policies in California, and Elon consistently tells me that he likes the social policies in the state of Texas. He likes the social policies in the state of Texas. He's not just a fiscal conservative. He likes the social policies in Texas. He he's led. He leaves behind breadcrumbs. Elon Musk. He has used Twitter to spread anti-vax, COVID denial, conspiracy theories. He engages in transphobia so much so his transgender daughter has taken legal action to disassociate herself from him. Musk traffics in online misogyny and racism, but none of that is the reason Biden has made him an enemy on purpose. Biden has gone to war with Elon Musk. I'll tell you why in a second. But what you need to remember is that just because Tesla and SpaceX appear futuristic, that doesn't mean Musk is progressive. He is and always will be a product of apartheid era South Africa. His father owned a sub-Saharan emerald mine in Africa. Musk will never change his spots. Now, Maybe you think it's cool to be or to have been the richest man in the world. So let me calm the waters for you, because uh, the rich and the powerful want you to think they're complicated, that they're a mixed bag. Trust me on this. Anyone who has a billion dollars is a bad person. It's axiomatic. No amount of indulgences paid to the church or to a charity can erase the hurt a billionaire inflicts on his workers, his family, the environment, the impoverished, our government and our democracy. Forgiving billionaires, idolizing billionaires is Stockholm syndrome. So let me provide you, if I may, with some clarity during this holiday season. I know you're all looking for religion and faith. Well, here is something to believe in. It is a constant in nature. And this is it. The rich and powerful are your enemy. Never stop believing that the rich and powerful are your enemy. That should be your religion. Warren Buffett, bad guy, bad guy, owns huge chunks of Chevron, owns all of Occidental Petroleum. He owns BNSF Railway, one of America's largest railway companies. No sick leave. The abuse of those workers during the negotiations, you read about it. It's legendary how Warren Buffett abuses the railway workers. Bill Gates, bad guy, invented nothing. He he bought MS-DOS and then stole all of Steve Jobs's great ideas. Bill Gates is nothing more than a ruthless monopolist who, instead of paying taxes on his wealth, started the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which wields way too much power in Africa, acting unilaterally with no transparency, dictating what seeds should be planted and what medicines should be dispersed. It's anti-democratic. 
And in the end, it just makes him richer. Bill Gates, no matter how much branding he pays for, he's a horrible, horrible human being. Jeff Bezos. Okay, him I like. You know, what's not to like? He's got a full head of hair. He's handsome. He's charismatic. He's good to his workers. He pays his taxes. He's pro-union, pro-Main Street. Jeff Bezos, exception to the rule. The point is, it is the holiday season and you're tired. And you're probably not able to focus on what's going on in Washington right now. And there seems to be this endless last minute churning of stories that are somewhat mystifying. And you do not have time to pan the brackish water for nuggets of truth. It's the holiday season. So let me tell you the truth. The rich and the powerful are your enemy. It's just that simple. Elon Musk, rich and powerful, Ergo, he is your enemy. He hangs out with Jared Kushner in Oil Rich Cutter. I promise you, if you never, ever waver, if you never stray from this core belief that the rich and powerful are evil and must be destroyed, I promise if that is your core belief, you can stop watching the news. You can stop reading the New York Times for a month. And when you come back, you will still know exactly what's going on in the world. That is how I raised all my kids. I told them to ask who is rich, who is powerful, and then destroy them before they destroy you. And that worked out great for me until my kids turned 10 and realized I was the richest and most powerful person in their immediate vicinity, and they destroyed me. Musk must be destroyed for many reasons, but primarily because he's rich and powerful. He is an industrialist, which means in the end he is threatened by the bedlam of a real democracy. Twitter, on the other hand, is the kind of anarchy, confusion, bedlam, and unruliness industrialists like Elon Musk thrive on. Musk doesn't want democracy, you know, where people decide uh, their fate. Uh, there's too much pandemonium in a real democracy for a right-wing authoritarian like Elon Musk. No, Musk prefers the illusion of democracy, and that's what Twitter provides. He asks his followers to vote on whether he should stay or go, but he's already decided he's going. He's leaving Twitter. It's unsustainable. He can't make cars and rockets and also be running Twitter. Twitter is ruining his brand, so he's already leaving Twitter. He wasn't asking his followers, should I stay or should I go? He's going, but Twitter is perfect for people like Elon Musk and Twitter. Twitter is how the people in charge can manipulate the rabid mob, the rabid mob salivating over the next outrage. Twitter has no accountability or memory. I love it. I, I enjoy Twitter. It's designed to keep everyone in a permanent state of agitation with zero focus on who is really generating all the dyspepsia in our life. And that would be the rich and powerful. It's a distraction that the rich and powerful use 
to uh, divide us, right? Now, look, I get a lot of information from Twitter, but let's be clear here. Social media, especially Twitter, offers the false promise of reform. It offers the false promise of solidarity. It fractures us. Yes, there is room for self-expression, but too often Twitter is about hero worship. It's those with followers and those who follow. And despite what the right wing insists, Twitter is and always has been a platform better suited for the right wing. And since Musk has taken the reins, Twitter has lurched even further to the right, if such a thing is possible. All I see now are tweets from right-wing charlatans who I never follow. When I try to mute them, they still show up in my feed. Twitter is and always has been the platform for white male grievance. Always. It was always unsafe for women, the LGBTQ community, and people of color. And it was always where the right wing prospered. According to an article last year in The Economist, a study was conducted by Twitter, and that study was handed over to The Economist. And The Economist and Twitter agrees that their algorithm amplifies the viewpoints of right-wing politicians and journalists much louder than left-wing, left-of-center politicians and journalists. That is a finding that comes from Twitter itself. They handed it over to The Economist. I don't know why. I suspect that there's so much rage inside the, the right wing that it just feeds off Twitter, that, that people, are an, people who are right wing and filled with hate are more at home on Twitter. So it's more likely uh, Twitter's more likely to amplify the hate uh, that, that emanates from the right. So just because the right wing constantly complains they're not being heard, that doesn't mean it's true. See, conservatives have thin skin. One person calls them a transphobic racist. Poof, the cancel culture is out to destroy me. In the past two weeks, Elon Musk has proven the lie that people on the right support free speech. He calls himself a free speech absolutist. The truth is he's just an absolutist. He wants the freedom to spew hate speech with no consequences. Elon Musk, like all conservatives, wants to suppress speech. He only wants to protect hate speech, speech that bullies and frightens. Like all right-wing conservatives, Elon Musk wants to protect his speech, but not the speech of those who disagree with him. The right wing wants the freedom to say transphobic, misogynistic, anti-Semitic, racist things without getting canceled. But since Musk took over Twitter, we've seen the real cancel culture. And it's really the suspension culture. If Elon Musk doesn't like what you say, your Twitter account is suspended indefinitely. Like all authoritarians, Elon Musk in the past two weeks has suppressed freedom of speech 
on Twitter, like all authoritarians do, he has suppressed freedom of speech in the name of security. His own. He didn't like his private jet being tracked. So last Wednesday, he canceled the Twitter account of the gentleman who publishes the whereabouts of Elon Musk's private jet. It's perfectly fine for the owner of Twitter to harvest our privacy to sell to advertisers. But when someone innocently harvests Elon Musk's privacy, suddenly it's a security issue. And so that Twitter account was suspended, as were the accounts of several high profile, high profile journalists from The Washington Post, The New York Times and Mashable because they linked to that suspended account. Yeah, a real free speech absolutist. When Twitter, when Twitter users on the left took to Twitter to promote an alternative to Twitter, something called Mastodon, Twitter deleted their accounts. Over the weekend, the Twitter account of Taylor Lorenz, a Washington Post reporter, was suspended after she innocently tweeted out a request for Elon Musk to respond to a story she was writing. The account has since been reinstated, but Musk offered no reason for her suspension. He acts unilaterally. If he doesn't like your speech, you are suspended. As I said, so much for being a free speech absolutist. Elon Musk, like all right wing conservatives, are hate speech absolutists. Elon Musk is now presenting a narrative claiming that before he took over Twitter and saved civilization, that's why he claims he bought Twitter, before he saved civilization and bought Twitter kicking and screaming. Remember, he changed his mind, but then he got sued. Before he bought Twitter, he claims the FBI was running Twitter as an arm of the Democratic Party. And he claims the proof is in these internal company documents that Musk, the, the Twitter files that he has turned over to three so-called independent reporters. Now, I like Matt Taibbi. I really do. So but I'm going to say some things about him that I don't want misinterpreted. I do like Matt Taibbi. I don't like Barry Weiss. She is one of the conservative reporters who is interpreting the Twitter files for Elon Musk. She's live tweeting what she's uncovered going through the Twitter file. She is a conservative writer. She started his, her career writing editorials over at the Wall Street Journal. She became a conservative columnist for The New York Times. Eventually, she had to quit because her co-workers despised her. OK, former Rolling Stone reporter Matt Taibbi, I believe, is one of the best writers in journalism. He is, however, one of those left of center reporters like Glenn Greenwald, who I also have tremendous respect for. But like Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi is capable of so much independent thinking they stray across the ideological party lines and sometimes find themselves in the warm embrace of somebody like Tucker Carlson, which is fine, okay? But Matt Taibbi isn't exactly providing a counter-narrative to Barry Weiss 
in reviewing these Twitter files, right? And Weiss, you have an inveterate right winger. I would expect an inveterate left winger, a Democrat, but instead we have Matt Taibbi, who is on the left, but a little too sympathetic to the right to provide the balance we need to review these Twitter files. There's a little bias there. And then the third journalist going through the Twitter files is Michael Schellenberger, author of 2021's, and this is the name of the, the book he wrote, San Francisco, get it? San Francisco. So right now, you know, he's an asshole, right? San Francisco, why progressives ruin cities? Gee, you think he might have a conservative bias? San Francisco, obviously, is one of Elon Musk's favorite books, right? Twitter headquartered in San Francisco. San Francisco is a takedown. The book is a takedown of progressive social policies. So those are the three journalists pouring over the Twitter files. These these are not exactly independent uh, judges. They're, you know, this is not an independent commission. You have two right wingers plus Matt Taibbi all looking to burnish their images, looking for smoking guns for clickbait. So on something like this, I turn to media matters. OK, what are we talking about here with the Twitter files? Because there's a lot to unpack with the Twitter files. The Hunter Biden story is what's pushing the narrative inside the Twitter files. The Hunter Biden laptop story was published in the New York Post, if you remember, in the weeks leading up to the 2020 presidential election. So first, the New York Post is not the Washington Post. If you don't live in New York, you could be forgiven for not knowing that the New York Post is an illegitimate tabloid owned by Rupert Murdoch, and it is a hotbed of right-wing paranoia with zero credibility. Zero credibility. It does not have authentic journalists. I do read the New York Post. I always have, for the same reason I read the National Enquirer. It's fun, but there's no guarantee any of it is true. It usually isn't, but it's fun. Now, it is true that the New York Post was pretty much the only American newspaper reporting on the Hunter Biden laptop story in 2020. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason legitimate news organizations were not reporting on the Hunter Biden laptop. And by the way, I can't stand Joe Biden. I'm a Bernie supporter. OK, I'm not. I have, you know, uh, now, why didn't legitimate and there are I know this is hard for the right to understand, but there are legitimate sources of news, you know, like uh, The New York Times, even Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal. If you don't read the editorials, it's a legitimate news organization. Uh, earlier, I mentioned Media Matters. There are legitimate news organizations where they hire reporters who went to 
journalism school. Okay, so there's a reason there's a reason practically every newspaper and news organization didn't report on the Hunter Biden story in the lead up to the 2020 election. There is a reason Twitter suspended the New York Post for 16 days. They have a policy of no act reporting. The, the reporter at the New York Post was in violation of the terms of service for Twitter. Twitter's policy was we do not allow stories that emanate from hacked computers. The material on the Hunter Biden story emanated was a violation of a very troubled man's privacy. Whatever is in it, whatever crimes Hunter or Joe may or may not have committed. And by the way, I do think there's there are crimes uh, on that laptop, but it can't be entered into a court of law as evidence because there was no warrant. I know the guy who uh, after 90 days, he supposedly owns the laptop. Go try that in a, a court of law. See if the judge will enter that laptop into a court of law. More importantly, this story was being peddled by Rudy Giuliani, who everyone knew was an inveterate liar. Okay, this was the same year, 2020, that they impeached Donald Trump because he had Rudy Giuliani in Ukraine trying to dig up dirt on Hunter Biden. Remember, remember, Donald Trump said to Zelensky, I'll give you the all the weapons that Congress has authorized. But first, you got to do me a favor. Give me some dirt on Hunter Biden. Newspapers were well within their right not to trust Rudy Giuliani, who, by the way, is about to be disbarred in Washington, D.C. Given that the 2016 elections had been tampered with by Vladimir Putin. Now, I know even people uh, on the left, some some of you don't believe this. I don't care. I'm not saying Donald Trump won because of Vladimir Putin in 2016, but there is no question that Vladimir Putin hacked Facebook and Twitter to influence the 2016 elections. He tampered with the 2016 elections. The DNC server, if you remember, got hacked and somehow it was all turned over to, to WikiLeaks. And then the news media uh, reported these embarrassing emails that contributed to Hillary Clinton's loss. OK, so the news media and especially because James Comey reopened uh, the investigation into Hillary's server right before the presidential elections in 2016, the news media was being extra cautious this time around. They decided we would not report on hacked material, especially hacked material that came from a private citizen like Hunter Biden. Again, Twitter had a policy not to promote hacked material. That wasn't a left or right wing slant. So it placed a 16 day freeze on The New York Post's account. 
which had reversed days before the election. There was if you wanted to read the Hunter Biden story, you could. I did. Twitter is a privately owned platform, which means just like the New York Post, Twitter in 2016 had a right to run uh, to say uh, the same way that the New York Post has a right to run, uh, you know, a story uh, that features hacked emails from Hunter's laptop. They're free to do that. Twitter is free to say we don't want to be associated with this garbage. Twitter has every right to stop this story from being spread on their platform. This isn't a First Amendment issue. The First Amendment is the government suppressing speech. And I understand there are some FBI agents who took jobs with Twitter. I understand that. Uh, this is tricky tricky stuff. You know, democracy, freedom of speech. There are no absolutes. You you cannot be a freedom of speech absolutist. Uh, I believe freedom of speech, self-proclaimed freedom of speech absolutist Elon Musk has proven this. Okay, most Americans aren't on Twitter. There are other ways for voters to learn about Hunter Biden. More importantly, again, this country was on high alert after 2016. Whether you want to believe it, Vladimir Putin is a bad guy who spends hundreds of millions of dollars each year on troll farms, on sabotaging elections, not just here in America, but in Brazil, France and Britain, which begs the question, if Elon Musk and the right wing, but mostly Elon Musk. I'm talking about Elon Musk right now. If Elon Musk is such a free speech absolutist, how come he's silent on Julian Assange's extradition? We're about this Justice Department. The Biden administration is desperately trying to, to pull Julian Assange uh, here in the United States to the United States from Britain and put him on trial uh, for Wiki, for uh, the uh, leaking all that, uh, the, leaking all the crimes our soldiers committed in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, they're going to try him uh, in violation of the Espionage Act. Okay, Elon Musk is a free uh, free speech First Amendment absolutist. Why isn't Elon Musk using his billions to pressure Joe Biden into pardoning Julian Assange? Instead, not a single peep from. Elon Musk about Julian Assange. Why? Because Elon Musk is on the fence. He has said so. He's not sure about Julian Assange. Last week, Elon Musk, the free speech absolutist, conducted a poll on Twitter asking whether Julian Assange should be pardoned by Joe Biden. He prefaced, he prefaced that poll by saying, quote, I am not expressing an opinion, but I did promise to conduct this poll. Should Julian Assange be pardoned? Again, Musk's tweet, this is the First Amendment absolutist. His tweet read, I'm not expressing an opinion on Julian Assange. Really? Elon Musk has an opinion on everyone and everything. But when it comes to the real champion of free speech, Julian Assange 
Elon Musk just isn't sure. Interesting. Elon Musk is not a champion of free speech. He is a champion of hate speech. Since taking over Twitter, he has reopened hundreds of accounts belonging to QAnon supporters and white Christian nationalists. There has been a jump in hate speech since he took over. There's been a jump in hate speech on Twitter since he took over. It is clear to anyone paying attention that when people like Musk talk about cancel culture, when they talk about freedom of speech, they are only talking about hate speech. The Twitter files that he has released have been twisted to suggest that well-known conservatives before Elon Musk took over were suspended, were shadow banned. Why? According to Musk's narrative, according to Matt Taibbi's narrative and Barry Weiss's narrative, they were shadow banned because of their right wing conservative views. No. As Media Matters points out, these right wing conservatives were suspended because they were violating Twitter's terms of service. College dropout Charlie Kirk, the founder of Turning Points USA, he wasn't shadow banned. He was suspended for violating Twitter's terms of service when he wouldn't stop engaging in transphobic hate speech. Dan Borgino, Media Matters points out that Dan Borgino is absolutely wrong for claiming he was shadow banned and then suspended all because of his right-wing ideology. No, yes, he was suspended permanently for violating Twitter's policy against spreading misinformation about COVID. That's why Dan Borgino was also banned from Google and Google ads. And yes, I understand that COVID denial and misinformation regarding the COVID vaccine is now a is now right wing ideology. I understand that. It's Ron DeSantis's presidential campaign platform. I understand that Ron DeSantis literally petitioned to convene a grand jury last week to investigate COVID vaccines. But Twitter before Musk had the right to suspend any accounts that spread lies about vaccines and COVID or in Donald Trump's case, inciting an insurrection. Conservatives are going through the Twitter files and now accusing the old Twitter pre-Musk of persecuting Donald Trump when they suspended his account after January 6th. How quickly we forget why was Donald Trump's account suspended? He was using it to incite an insurrection. In fact, today, the January 6th committee, moments ago, made a criminal referral to the Justice Department saying that Donald Trump aided and abetted an insurrection. So, of course, Twitter should have suspended his account permanently. Musk has invited all the racists back to Twitter because he's at home with racists. I have already talked on this show about the countless lawsuits 
filed in the state of California by the state of California against uh, Tesla for its culture of racism. I've already talked on this show about the court settlements Tesla has made with employees, African-Americans who were constantly called the N-word, who found swastikas on their lockers and inside the restrooms. So at the top of this segment, I said that Joe Biden purposely made an enemy out of Elon Musk. Here is why Joe Biden didn't celebrate Tesla when he was singing the praises of all the other manufacturers of electric vehicles. Here is why Joe Biden has gone to war quietly with Elon Musk. Elon Musk hates unions. Elon Musk is anti-union. When you drive a Tesla, you are supporting an anti-union car company. There is no gray area. I know a lot of people think because the Tesla is environmentally sound, Elon Musk must be progressive. It is not progressive to be anti-union. It's where I draw the line. Which side are you on? You're either on the side of unions or you're not. He hates unions. He's a union buster. It's why he left California for Texas. And Musk, if you pay attention, is openly anti-union. He has called Biden a sock puppet of the United Auto Workers. Unlike all the other manufacturers of electric vehicles here in the United States, Tesla is non-union. It's not just non-union, it's anti-union. The reason Joe Biden, who I have many, many problems with, I wish he weren't our president, but there is a reason he refused to mention Tesla during his State of the Union address this year, singing the praises of American auto manufacturers who are transitioning to electric vehicles. Biden knows that Elon Musk is anti-union, and if he thanks Elon Musk, he's going to piss off the United Auto Workers. Unlike GM or Ford, and they have had a, a troubled history with the United Auto Workers, but at least there are union assembly lines here in the United States at GM and Ford. Tesla, let me just say this again, okay? This is a fact. Tesla is anti-union. Not a single Tesla employee here in the United States or Germany, or Germany belongs to a union. Elon Musk is anti-union. Tesla and SpaceX are non-union companies. So let's call Elon Musk what he really is. He is anti-worker. Which side are you on? Okay? That's how I take the measure of a man. Are you for or against unions? He is anti-union. When you drive a Tesla, you are driving an anti-union 
car, you are not a progressive, especially since there are other electric vehicles you can purchase. Which side are you on? When you buy a Tesla, when you support Elon Musk, you are turning your back on workers. The National Labor Relations Board said that Musk violated U.S. labor laws when he fired union activists over a Tesla, when he took to Twitter threatening his workers, when he, when he took to Twitter and said anyone who joins the United Auto Workers will, will lose their stock options. That is against the law. You know, if we had a National Labor Relations Board that uh, wasn't severely underfunded and we tweaked a couple of the laws, uh, he could be fined for that. He should be locked up for that. But it is against the law to threaten workers and say no stock options if you try to form a union. He is anti-worker. Tesla, SpaceX have factories in California, Nevada, New York, and Texas. Not a single one of Elon Musk's workers belong to a union. Which side are you on? Because I'll say this till I'm blue in the face. The measure of a man or a woman is, are you pro or anti-union? Which side are you on? The Fremont plant in California that's making Teslas, it used to be union when it was owned by General Motors back, at, back in the 1960s. General Motors set up that plant in the 60s. It was union. When Toyota took over the plant in 1984, it stayed union. It stayed union right up until 2010 when Toyota sold that plant to Musk and Musk turned it into a non-union factory. In uh, uh, 2017, the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, told Elon Musk, Mr. Free Speech Absolutist, that he was violating labor law when he warned workers at his Tesla plant that they were forbidden to hand out union literature in the parking lot during non-work time. Mr. First Amendment, Mr. Freedom of Speech, Mr. I'm a, a free speech absolutist, Unless you're going to talk about unions on the job, which is perfectly legal, unless you're going to hand out pro-union literature in the parking lot, then I'm not so much a free speech absolutist. Again, Elon Musk is not running non-union shops. He is running anti-union shops. And if you are anti-union, then you are anti-worker. And if you are anti-worker, you are anti-American. Which side are you on? Musk is not a champion of free speech. When you're forbidding your workers from talking about unions, when you're forbidding your workers from handing out pro-union literature, you are anti-free speech. Now, you might be rooting for SpaceX to take us to the moon. You might be rooting for Tesla to make a battery that is actually environmentally friendly. But know this, 
Musk is anti-union. He hates workers. You may be rooting for Elon Musk, but trust me on this. He is not rooting for you. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. The January 6th committee has made a criminal for criminal referrals to the Justice Department regarding the role that Donald Trump played in the January 6th insurrection. The, those charges are obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to make a false statement, uh, and inciting, aiding, or assisting an insurrection. Here to talk more about this is Howie Klein from Down With Tyranny. Hello, Howie. Hey, David. So Hope Hicks, a senior advisor to Donald Trump, told the January 6th committee that Donald Trump refused to put out a statement warning against violence in the lead up to the January 6th insurrection. Uh, he said that all that matters is winning. We've talked about and that. His, yes, and he said that his, uh, his legacy would uh, disintegrate if he was seen as a loser. His whole life, he's always been afraid of that, of being seen as a loser because, of course, he was. <laughs> right. So you have never written his political obituary with absolute certitude. This week, we're going to maybe see his taxes. Richie Neal, the outgoing chairman of House Ways and Means, may release his income tax statements. We've seen four criminal referrals to the Justice Department, his poll numbers, he's lagging behind DeSantis. Is he through? Like you said, you can, no one knows. You know, 70, what, 4 million, something like that, 74 million people voted for him, or 71 million, something over 70 million people voted for him at a time when he had already been doing his thing for four years in the White House. So, you know, never underestimate or, no, or never overestimate uh, the intelligence of the, um, the voting public. So who knows? I mean, you know, this could be the opposite. People, people could see this stuff. Republicans are already uh, attacking it as some, you know, uh, uh, political savagery against him. And some of these people are going are gonna to feel sympathetic to Trump. And think that oh he look look how they're treating him, <laughs> and they'll dig their heels in, and you know so who knows? It might it might I hope it's the end of him, but I don't know if it's the end of him. And, and on another other level, by the way, speaking about hope, not Hicks, but uh, in our hearts, what are we hoping for? Uh, that this loser isn't the, the candidate, and instead it's DeSantis, who's going to be much much more difficult to beat especially for someone like uh, Biden. So who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Uh, I just, uh, Sam, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried is, is uh, going, not going to fight extradition. Oh, we'll get to Sam Bankman-Fried in a second, because you've been writing a lot about him over at Down With Tyranny. The committee also recommended that there be an ethics complaint against the, the putative speaker, uh, Kevin McCarthy, that they, they believe that he yeah, should. And speaking of sympathy, 
you know, they, they might have, what they might have done, I mean, they had to do it, and it's good that they did it. But what they might have done is just given him the speakership because they, they, they uh, referred him to, uh, to the House Ethics Committee, which, of course, is going to do nothing whatsoever since it, that's what it does, nothing whatsoever. So, uh, so that will be dismissed in like two seconds. But they did it along with Jim Jordan and Scott Perry and uh, Andy Biggs. So, so three total insurrectionists, as, as radical right as you can get. And they threw McCarthy in with them. And that, you know, that's going to make it even more difficult for the people who are holding out against McCarthy. Uh, I call them the, uh, the five Mouseketeers mm-hmm. uh, to, to hold out against him. They're, they're, uh, you know, they, they might now be swayed to go along with, with making him speaker. What, what was the political calculus there to, to help him become Which, speaker? Are they afraid? Are the Democrats? Uh, is no, political? absolutely not. There was no political calculus. They were just doing the right thing. That's all. You, there was no way that, you know, look, these four people were given uh, subpoenas and they refused to, uh, uh, you know, show up. And that they, they, the committee had no choice but to refer them to, ha- to the House Ethics Committee. Otherwise, the subpoena system would, would, would be of no value anymore uh, for any congressional committees. So they really didn't have any choice. There was no, uh, no political calculus there. And Richie Neal, who you can't stand, has the tax return. I, I would interpret that strongly. I'm not, you know, I'm not a fan of his, but it's not can't stand. Definitely not. What are the chances that we're going to see his tax returns? I think it's very, very good. I don't know if we're going to get every page of his tax returns, but I think that we're going to get, you know, some real damaging stuff. That's what I think. Do I know? Do I? I don't. I have contacts all through the Capitol, but not in Richie Neal's office. Okay. What? What if we look at the tax returns, and you know they're not that bad. That I was always worried that this was a red herring. That there was no, 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 they'll be bad. They will be bad. Yeah. Trump. Trump is a compulsive cheat. He can't not cheat. You know, that he has spent his entire life cheating and there's no way he could, uh, you know, put in years and years of tax returns without without cheating. It's just not a possibility. In terms of uh, the politics, his supporters don't care that he cheats on his taxes. They they might lose faith in him if it's discovered that he's broke. Are we going to discover that he's broke? I doubt it because he's not. He's not broke, but he's not as rich as he pretends. Not to. as rich as they say, but he's worth in you know how many millions and millions and millions of dollars from these suckers who keep who keep right. you know buying his hats and uh, you know sending him money. I mean, he, he you know and he, he's putting the money into vehicles that he can use, not to donate to other candidates, which he pretty much doesn't do, but that he'll be able to access that money, you know, by sort of skirting the law. In other words, he can pay, uh, what's that kid's name, that, that, that young kid that he ignores that, that, uh, that uh, Melania had? He's very, very tall. Uh, Jared? I don't think that one. No, there's some kid that Melania had. Supposedly by Trump. Oh, Barone. And it's 
Barone. Ba- yes, or Baron, right? Is it the Baron? Is it Barone or Baron? We, we're not supposed to mention his name, so. Why? Just, it's, you know, he's under the age of 18, so we, we don't mention I call, oh. I call him Barone. In any case, Trump can hire Barone or Baron or whoever he is to, uh, uh, you know, to run the pack and give him a million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. That's legal. So anyway, yeah, so this, this money that he's collecting, he's collecting this money for himself. So yes, I don't, I don't see him as broke. Not as rich as he says, uh, not broke. Right. You have a piece over down with Jerry, and then we'll get to Sam Bankman. Freed. You Is this going to be the, the piece where, where I mention you? Uh, which one is that? I'm going through. The one that I mentioned you, it's the one about you get, there are three buttons and you can press just one of the buttons and you have to decide which button you're going to press. So one button, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a um, what do they call them? A uh, end of the road button. So, so these are magic buttons. So one you press and it's the end of the road for Trump. Another you press and it's the end of the road for all of the members of Congress who have enabled him. And the other one which I said not even you would press, is to uh, be the end of the road for all 71 or 74 million people who voted for Trump. Maybe, uh, you know, you get me on a bad day. <laughs> no, I mean, it's something that we could fantasize over, but think about it. I mean, that would be, that would put you like beyond anything that Hitler or Stalin or, or, or Genghis Khan ever did. I mean, that, that's like, that would be beyond belief. And, and suppose that instead of, uh, uh, so you would agree that you would never push that button, right? Not today. You would never push that. <laughs> but what, what, if they, what if they narrowed it down to the, say, 100,000 worst of that 71 million? Do I, and I get to pick a couple? And can I can I throw no, in can I throw in a couple no, 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 no. You get, can, can I throw in a couple you, you of blue get, dog Democrats who voted for Biden? No. No. You get to pick either just Trump, all the members of Congress who supported Trump, or this hundred thousand of the worst of the uh, the MAGA uh, supporters who voted for Trump. I would uh, go after the enablers. If I had to pick one button, it would be the enablers. Yeah, just one. Yeah, I would so pick the, the members of. Okay, I think I would too. I don't hate Trump. I hate the people who are afraid of him. The people who afraid of him. The Republicans. How about the ones who are using their own for their own uh, good? I mean, I don't think that Marjorie Trader Green is afraid of him. I think she thinks he's fabulous, and she thinks he's her, her ticket to ride. I think uh, they're afraid of him. I think they think they have. I'm afraid of. Him. McCarthy is afraid of him. I'm sorry? But Bobert's not afraid of him. Bobert sees a kindred soul. Okay. He inspired people like Bobert and, and Taylor Green and Madison Cawthorn. These people got into politics because of him. Afraid? No, no. McCarthy is afraid, yes. And, and not just McCarthy, but lots of them are afraid. I mean, that, you, know, I, you know, as much as I hate, and this doesn't change the hate, uh, as much as I hate McConnell, I also kind of admire him for, you know, poking uh, Trump in the eye very frequently, including today. What, what, did, Mc- I, I've, uh, what did McConnell do today? 
you know, someone asked him as he was running down the hallway in the Senate, uh, you know, what he thought of the, um, the referral. And instead of using the Republican talking points, which is that, you know, just political, no one cares about it. He said, you know, everyone uh, in America knows who was at fault in the uh, in that insurrection. You know, he, he, he told it. Uh, you know, he 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 backed away. He went away from the the talking points that everyone was given, and that you hear all the Republicans, you know, spouting right now. Right, right. So, Kevin McCarthy is he going to be a speaker or not? Yeah, he's going to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I think so. What the, I, I what I believe that they're trying to do is to bring every possible concession out of him, including the vacate the chair rule, which will mean he'll, he, you know, has, will be controlled by the, the Nazis completely. Uh, he'll give in on everything in the end. I mean, that's the one thing that Ryan told him, do not give in on the vacate the rule, uh, the vacate the chair rule. Do not do it. You'd be better off not being speaker than being speaker under that. And uh, and McCarthy has held firm on that so far. And he'll, but in the end, uh, it's only going to take the four, four or five of them to uh, vote no, and he won't be speaker. So he'll give in. In the end, he will give in, and they'll let him be speaker. You know, kind of a puppet speaker. And he'll wish he hadn't taken it. He'll look back and say, maybe or maybe not. Did you read that? Uh, I forgot where I read it today, but there was a big article about Bill Thomas who was a very powerful Republican uh, congressman for, for three decades from Bakersfield. And he was the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, a very, very important guy. And he was the one, I don't want to say he invented McCarthy, but McCarthy started as an intern in his office. And it was eventually, uh, you know, Thomas kind of picked him to, to succeed him when, when he retired. And Thomas, you know, basically said the guy is lower than a worm and you can't believe a word he says. And, uh, you know, Thomas just went off on the guy. Right. And Thomas is a very, very conservative Republican. So Mastodon, are you on Mastodon? Is Twitter? I am on Mastodon. And I, I, I had a bad experience there. What I, the, the, what I did is I went to the, I, I signed up, to, I think, to the wrong instance. That's what they call the, the things you sign up on. So there's no overall Mastodon that you sign up on. It, 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 it's various instances. So I saw an instance that looked like it would be good for me. It wasn't like in Austria, <laughs> you know. I thought this would be a good one. So I signed up to that one, and it, as it turns out, some psychopath is the uh, is like the moderator, and I think it's a woman. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but you know she flipped out when I used the word uh, "kiss of death," thinking I think she what she thought is that I was trying to. I said a Trump kiss of death, and I think what she thought I was doing was urging people to kill Trump because she didn't understand the term "kiss of death." She didn't know what it, she didn't know what it meant. Uh, so she suspended me. All of a sudden, so I, on Elon Musk's side. Yeah, well, she was worse than Elon Musk. So I appealed, and I don't know, a few days later, they granted me the appeal that I was right. But it turns out that they, on, on this instance that I'm on, you, if you write about politics, you, it has to be hidden. Yet they give you a button to press that hides what you write, so that if someone wants to read it, they have to unhide it. 
So, you know, I'm thinking, like, why am I on this thing? This is stupider than, than Twitter. And I, I just, and I didn't like it in any way. So then I found this thing called Post. And I started going to Post, and I love it. Post I really like. I, it's elegant. It's simple. It's, uh, it, just, it just really, really works well for me. Uh, and other, but everyone who I know tells me I'm an idiot and that uh, Mastodon is better. But, uh, you know, I, li- I like Post better. So I'm, I'm posting on Post. And, and as far as Mastodon, you know, I'll say like maybe like, you know, once a day I'll put something up there. And I know every time I put something up, I'm taking a chance that this crazy woman is going to come and attack me and suspend me again. <laughs> Unbelievable. Are we wrong for wanting to leave Twitter? Should we stay and fight? I mean, how hard is it to stay and fight? Should we stay? I'm staying and fighting, but I think Elon Musk is going to uh, leave Twitter. And, you know, put it, you know, put someone else in charge, like, you know, Jared Kushner or, uh, uh, you know, he'll find someone worse than him. I think he's purposely, he will literally, he's going to find someone worse than him because he tweeted something. I don't know if it was this morning or last night that uh, you better watch out or you'll get what you wanted or something like that, which I interpreted as meaning he will leave and, and make us wish that he was back. And the reason he's going to leave is because the bottom has fallen out of Tesla, and uh, you know they're now there's now an, uh, an active motion by the I think it's the second biggest shareholder to displace uh, him as the CEO of Tesla. So he really has to sort of tend to that now, um, or he'll really be in trouble. For my so, I, so I do. We have a lot of. You know about the, I'm sorry. You know about that phony poll that he did, right? Of course. It was phony. Well, any Twitter poll is phony. The Twitter poll means something. I mean, I do Twitter polls all the time. They're absurd. And, and he, his Twitter polls are absurd also. So he did a Twitter poll and he lost, you know, more people, I don't know, 55, 57% of the people who participate or bots or whoever participated in the poll said he should not be CEO. And he said he would abide by it. And then he, then he uh, said that thing th- this morning or last night about your wish, uh, you don't want what you wish for. And then he just dis- disappeared. And, you know, this is the longest he's ever not tweeted. So we have a lot of new listeners. And Howie Klein, before he ran uh, the Blue America PAC, uh, founded the Blue America PAC. He's the treasurer of the Blue America PAC. He writes down with Journey. In a previous life, Howie ran Warner Brothers and Reprise Records. <laughs> Well, Warner, not Warner Brothers, Reprise Records. Reprise Records and four, four, one, five, uh, five records. Yeah. So Reprise is half of Warner Brothers. Four one five was an independent label that I had in San Francisco, and and I don't know if you you heard about it or not, or you read about it, but um, one of our premier bands, Romeo Void, uh, had a sax player named Benjamin Bossy who passed away a couple of days ago no. on Friday evening. I'm sorry to hear that. Is that what you were going to? No, well, I, yeah, it was I, really bad. Uh, that's bad news. I was going to, but I'm sorry to hear that. I was going to ask you about the, the corporate suites and how Elon Musk's behavior is aberrant that at some point he's gotten bigger than the company and the company, Tesla, SpaceX, and Twitter traditionally, they get rid of you. They don't want somebody who is drawing attention away from the product. 
So is he going to go away? Not just from Twitter, but from Tesla and SpaceX. Well, uh, maybe, but I don't think so. He, although it's possible, I'm, I'm not saying it's not going to happen, but, but, you know, the, the board of Tesla is handpicked by him. Uh, so, you know, I, I doubt that they're going to get rid of him. Uh, you know, Tesla existed before he came along, just like Twitter existed before he came along. So he comes along, uh, and, and, you know, it's not like he invented Tesla. People think that people think he invented, uh, you know, electric cars. They're wrong. Um, and just the same way he didn't invent tweets. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, you know, the one thing I'll tell you that's good news along the line of your questioning is that he is no longer the richest man in the world. Right. It's official as of yesterday. Uh, some French guy is now the richest, the richest are, uh, billionaire. You posted, are not, you posted the list. Yes, uh, I did. Right. If we're supposed to trust Tesla and SpaceX with our lives, really, I mean, they're, they're trying to push self-driving cars on us and land men on the moon. Would you put your life in the hands of Elon Musk? I, I don't see how he survives this, but I, I'm usually wrong. I don't know. I wouldn't do it. But, you know, I, was, I, went, to, I went to a Cory Bush event yeah, there's Saturday. a great picture yes. of you. You look good. There's a great picture of you with her. Me and Corey, yes. Yeah. So I so I went to this event, but it's far. It was, it was, it's too far for me to drive. You know, I, I, I'd go crazy. But a friend of mine who's much, much younger, he drove. So he drove the car. He drives right up to someone's bumper, practically, and he doesn't stop. And he accelerates, even though they have the light on, he accelerates because... A beeper comes on if he's too close, and he doesn't stop the car until the beeper comes on. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, I can't go for that. You know, and then I said to him, you know, you're going the wrong way. You don't go through the valley to get to Santa Monica. He said, well, my app says to. I said, well, your app's wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you ignored me. What, what, was it a Tesla? No, it wasn't a Tesla. It was just what I don't think. It was just one of these, you know, modern. It's just it's a modern car. The point that I'm making is that these young people, they're used to this technology, and that's what they. That's how they do it. You know, I know how to get places. I know how, I. I can even, you know, once I realize that I can't remember anyone's phone number anymore because it, it's all automated. Then I started getting very suspicious about this because I wanted to. I used to remember every one of my friends' phone numbers. Now I can barely remember my own. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and in terms of getting places, I want to know how to get places. I don't want. Uh, I don't want to. I have to depend on an app to get me places. I also want to know when to break. I don't want to depend on 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 some you know possibly malfunctioning technology to tell me when to break and not break till then or crash into somebody. Sam Bankman-Fried. Let's talk about Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, but first, I want to ask you how the fundraiser for the great Cory Bush went. It went amazingly well. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they were doing fundraising. I was pr- I'm proud to say that I was the first one to step up and, uh, and, and offer money. And as soon as I did, other people uh, matched me. Right. This is for, for her. This is for, for security her. for her. She gets she not just not just Corey, but her children get death threats literally every day, 
you know, people saying the most horrible, horrible things to her, uh, or to her, or to whoever picks up the phone, uh, just, you know, the most, you know, just absolutely disgusting things that they wouldn't say to a man, things that they wouldn't say to a white person. They, that, but they said she's a black woman that frees them to say these unbelievable things. And, uh, and, and, you know, some of these uh, threats are very credible. People calling up and saying, I know your daughter gets out of school at 3 p.m. at this such and such an address. I'll be waiting for her with my Uzi. You know, it's probably not true, but, you know, probably is that good enough for a mother? No. Anyway, she, she needs um, a security. Congress doesn't pay for security for her. And uh, that was what the fundraiser was for. The security, by the way, is $30,000 a month. Incredible. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. This is how you end up with fascism. Good people say it's just not worth it. It's just too scary. This is They stop serving on school boards because the MAGA thugs intimidate. Who needs the aggravation? It's Want to rethink your decision not to press the button on those 71 million? Well, uh... Just kidding. So what were you saying about Sam Bankman-Fried? Sam Bankman-Fried, he's sitting in a jail in the Bahamas. But he's, Again, yes. He's not fighting. almost got out today. I'm sorry? He almost got out today. I mean, he was out of the jail for part of the time he was in court. Uh, and he, he has, seems to have said, or at least his lawyer says that he has said now that he will not fight extradition and he, he wants to go home to, uh, to the U S I, I can't imagine. I mean, they even have, you know, his cell ready at the metropolitan, uh, <laughs> detention center in Brooklyn. No, really? Oh, really I, I'm I, telling I thought, you the truth. I, I thought it was Jeffrey Epstein's cell that you were talking about. Yeah. Oh, that was in Manhattan. That was the first thing I checked. Believe me, I wanted to see which one. Yeah. Uh, no, he, you know, but I can't imagine that he's going to live to testify because he, he can bring down the whole U.S. political system. He has given probably at least, not, not just him, but him and let's say FTX, which he was the CEO of. So, he, so in other words, he was able to direct other executives to give money to other people. But it, it's around $100 million that they've spent, or maybe, maybe, maybe more. Uh, and it, it involves some of the biggest players in American politics. I mean, he was the second, Bankman Freed himself was the second biggest donor to Joe Biden in 2020. Do you, do you hear the press uh, talking about that at all, for example? No. I read no, that they don't, right? Yeah, I, I read it over Down With Tyranny, and... I mean, they, they don't, the, the media, you know, there was a, a blockbuster story today. It was really, really good. I mean, I, I have nothing but praise for the people who wrote the story. It was a blockbuster at the New York Times about George Santos. So George Santos was, um, is a, a congressman-elect from Long Island. And he's a man of the uh, and good Republican. He's a rich landlord. A MAGA Republican. A MAGA Republican. <laughs> Very wealthy, right? No one knows for sure. I'm because joking. everything he's I, I ever saw, I, I'm joking. He's he's a liar, right? He's an inveterate liar. 
also liar. Everything he said turns out to be untrue, you know, which the New York Times did a great investigation. They went all the way back to, you know, when he was living in Brazil. He's a Brazilian. And they found tons of stuff, and it's really good. But not anywhere in that story did they mention that he was financed by Sam Bankman-Fried. No mention. And every time they write about these politicians doing bad things, shouldn't they be mentioning the, the banking freed part of this? Doesn't that say something about them? That that's a, that's a value. They don't. I mean, you you read that thing about uh, Maxwell Frost, for example, not being. You know, he claims he was denied uh, a rental unit in D.C. because of bad credit. And, and, you know, that was a big story that you know, he's a, he's a press hound and he got a big story out of that everywhere. But, but one, maybe some lazy reporter who should like dig a little bit and see that, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried put a million dollars into his campaign in return for him starting a cryptocurrency advisory board with one of Sam Bankman-Fried's top cronies in Congress, Richie Torres. But you know that kind of stuff takes a little bit of work, and these uh, these journalists, so-called journalists, don't do it. I mean, the Times story talking about Sam Bankman-Fried uh, not fighting extradition today—they had four journalists on that. It could have been, the story that they wrote could have been written by someone in junior high school. They they did nothing. God forbid someone mentioned the word bribery. No one ever talks about it. You know, why not connect the dots between the large sums of money he was giving to these people and what they gave to him? That's why I don't think he's going to ever be able to testify. I think they'll kill him. Or they'll have him killed or they'll say he's committed suicide. Because, you know, look, Tom Emmer is a congressman, a Republican congressman from uh, uh, Minnesota. He was a member of the, uh, the senior member of the ha of the House Financial Services Committee, and he's the chairman of this thing called the Blockchain Eight. The, all four all four Republicans and all four Democrats of, that make up the Blockchain Eight wrote a letter to Gary Gensler. Gary Gensler is the chairman of the SEC, and they said basically, who the hell do you think you are going after FTX and cryptocurrency? That's not part of your job. You're, you're, you shouldn't be doing this. And they were very threatening to him. And they have, you know, I mean, they're the House Financial Services Committee, they can control the money that goes to his, um, uh, to, to the, the SEC. And so they're really threatening him in, in a nasty letter. And that came right after uh, Bankman Free donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to these clowns. But you never read about it in the, in the, in the papers. They don't talk about it. They just, you know, Sam Bankman Freed gave, has a mother who's just like him, a conservative, anti progressive Democrat. She has a pack called the uh, I don't know, Mind the Gap Pack, I think it's called. I think it's called Mind the, Mind the, ba the Gap Pack. He. He and a couple of his cronies at um, FTX gave her a million dollars. Gave the pack a million dollars. So, in other words, they could say, "Well, we, it wasn't the company that did it, but it was, came out to a, a clean million. So, obviously, it was decided that they're going to give her a million. It wasn't random people giving her this or that. She got a million bucks for that for, for her her pack. She wound up." having the members of the the uh of that pack give a half a million dollars towards uh conservative democrat Sean Caston towards his campaign. 
Well, you think it's just a coincidence? Tell me that Sean Caston then hired her son, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's brother, Gabe Bankman-Fried, to come and work for him in Congress. You write that he had I access. Mean, coincidence? To, you, you write over down with Cherney that he had access to meetings that nobody had access to. That's right. No, that no staffer ever goes to, not even a chief of staff, let alone him who had a job as a letter opener. That was his job, opening opening letters. <laughs> and then suddenly he's in these highly confidential meetings and, and, and also running his mouth. Did any so of these, anyway, con- to any of these, con- is part of the problem the media and Congress don't understand? Yes. How any of this yes. works? They lose, they lose, they're afraid they'll lose access. That's why none of them will write about it. They'll, they'll it lose. just blows my mind. So if they don't off, if they don't Epstein, Sam Bankman freed, is there a possibility? There's other ways to do it, by the way. I invented a new word today called uh, Lee Harvey Oswald as a verb. <laughs> they can also Oswald him. The other thing is... is of this missing $32 billion, by the way, wasn't from grandma and grandpa. It was from drug cartels and North Korea, Iran, uh, Russia, uh, the Russian mafia, I should say. These people, you know, are also looking for a chance to, you know, get even with him. When you watch interviews with him, it feels like he's on the spectrum. It, it you know, maybe um, a soft. Yes, you know that he is on the spectrum, right? And that he doesn't, I, I don't get a sense that he, he kind of knew what he was, I don't know, what do you, what, like, like in terms of being evil. Well, you know he's on the spectrum, right? He's, he has to be on the spectrum. Do you know that? I don't know that. What? No, no, he is. It's, it's, oh. it's, it's, that's not, that's not some secret. I mean, that's, that's, that's the case. He is. And on top of that, he is a big time drug user. Right. So, um, or the girlfriend, they were all using methamphetamines, right? Or, yeah, something like that. But he's also very, very smart. I mean, you can be all those things at the same time. So, uh, if you ask me if he knew what he was doing, my answer would be yes. I think he did know what he was doing. Uh, And, you know, did he know uh, that? I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. I don't know why. I just... My yeah, I don't know. I've never heard you do that before, but I'm interested. I, it just... What little I saw of the interviews, it just feels like he's not all there. And that... No, I think that's an act. Oh, it is? A, it's an act. I, I think it's a combination of an act and ADD. Like, I know Bernie... I, I think... I think he very much does know what he's doing. You know, and my gut tells me that he's thinking, you know, I stashed away uh, four or five billion dollars. No one knows where it is except me. I'll go to jail for 20 years. I'll get out and I'll be really rich. That's what he's thinking. Well, maybe. I mean, that, that's that. You know, my gut tells me that. Now, I, I don't know if that's really the case or not. But uh, you know, the money just doesn't disappear into thin air. Right. And he had helicopters. Where's that money? He had helicopters. He didn't give it all to Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy. He had helicopter parents. Were they in on it? Are they going to prison? He, 
I think that they were in on it. I don't know about the father, so I don't really know much about the father. I know that the mother was in on it, uh, Barbara Freed. Uh, you know, but and and the brother was in on it. I mean, he was running uh, the biggest of, of the Sam Bankman Freed's political pact was being run by Gabe Bankman Freed, the brother. Mm. So we- you know, it was. Uh, the family affair. To be continued. But I, like I said, I don't know anything about the father. I mean, the mother and father both taught law at Stanford. Uh, Stanford, I mean, Stanford doesn't seem to mind when war criminals uh, t- uh, teach there. But now they, uh, uh, the, this, the bankman and the, the bankman and the freed professor are no longer there. Mm. Condi Rice was offended by them. And the- <laughs> <laughs> Howie Klein is the founder and the treasurer of the Blue America Pack. They raise money for progressive candidates around America. Read him every day. And we're raising money for uh, for, for uh, Cory Bush right now, by the way. And how do we how do we send her money? How do we send her money? If you go to Down with Tyranny, there's something on the top of the page that says About. And if you hit About, a, a, a drop-down menu comes and it says Donate. And then it offers you several places to donate. One of them is called incumbents. So if you hit on incumbents, you will uh, get to a page where you can find uh, Corey Bush. And you can donate there. You can donate $5. You cannot donate anything over $2,900. So anything between $1 and $2,900 would be very much welcome. For Corey, who is, is arguably the best member of Congress, by the way. I, you, no argument for me. I love her. I love her. Yeah, I do too. A year from now, a year from now, we will have watched countless debates, the South Carolina primary and the it's it's unbelievable. Just a year from now, the Iowa caucuses will be around the corner and they'll be important because the Republicans, I think they're still going first uh, with the Republicans. Very quickly, will Joe Biden... Will we be talking about his reelection? Will Donald Trump still be in the race a year from now? Good question. And of course, I don't know the answer. But your prediction. Biden has said that he's going to run for president if Trump does. So so let's start with Trump. Will Trump still be in the race? I, well, Trump, you know, desperately doesn't want to be seen as a loser. So it's conceivable that if, if it is like, if he's really, really, you know, going down and down and down and down and DeSantis is going up and up and up, Trump may try to get out of it by anointing some other maggot. Right. So I, so, you know, I I don't think Trump is going to put himself in a position to lose the primary. He's going to want to hang on as long as he possibly can, because that's what's bringing him the money. There's nothing else bringing him money. Uh, the way his political operation is bringing in money. He has multiple uh, packs and schemes. I mean, this last, this last one was insane with uh, those, those stolen artwork that he sold. Right. As yes. NFTs. Yeah, from like a Walmart ad or something. <laughs> Do you at all feel sorry for him? No, I, 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 I would press that button one second flag <laughs> if I. That was the only button. I, but I would do the same thing as you. I, I'd go for the uh, for the congressional enablers. Yeah, I have no 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 with them either. Great job. 
Thank you, Howie Klein. We said goodbye already. We said goodbye. <laughs> Thank you, Howie. <laughs> Take care, David. Thank you. See you next week. Yes, great. Bye. Merry Christmas. That's Howie. And happy Hanukkah. That's Howie Klein. Read him over at Down With Tyranny and donate to Cori Bush. Uh, Cori Bush is a great congresswoman from St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, she was the one who had to remind Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden that the eviction moratorium was expiring, and she took to the steps of the Capitol to sleep on the Capitol to remind Biden and Pelosi uh, that people are about to be evicted, and they are being evicted right now because uh, the Supreme Court ruled that the uh, eviction moratorium was unconstitutional. I'm David Feldman. This is The Mop-Up. Joining us is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn and Dr. Joanne Lynn. We're going to talk about an important subject that we neglect. And because we neglect it, they take advantage of it. Hospice care. Uh, if we're lucky, we get to uh, experience hospice care, if we're lucky. It's an uncomfortable <laughs> topic. Before you introduce Dr. Joanne Lynn, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, what does hospice care mean? What does it mean? I think the original intention was that there ought to be an alternative for people who are willing to give up certain things. And we can get in that with uh, with Joanne, but so that people could be comfortable in their last six months of life, giving up um, any desire to be cured, simply they wanted their pain managed and so on. And most of it would take place in your home. So you wouldn't be subjected to all of the uh, unnecessary strangeness of America's hospital systems. It was started in Britain. And now here in the United States, it has been totally not totally, because there certainly are some good hospices, like there are maybe one good political action committee. But in general, <laughs> it's just a, um, you know, it's just been corrupted by corporate interests who have a lot of interest in making money and very little interest in caring for the patients. Right. I saw it with nursing homes, uh, elder care with with my mother. It's uh, a for-profit industry, and they're trying to save money, not lives. Please introduce Dr. Lin. All right. Well, uh, this is Joanne Lin, my uh, my spouse of uh, a very long time, uh, 52 <laughs> years, and uh, she's been working in elder care uh, and hospice for most of her professional life. She's a medical doctor. She's a medical doctor. And not that there's anything wrong with being a doctor of something else, but she is a medical doctor and fully licensed to practice. <laughs> and we um, we talk about this a lot over dinner. And uh, I, but she knows lots of stuff. And I'd like <laughs> to just introduce her right now. Joanne? Where did hospice begin, and was I more or less correct in defining what it started, what it offered at its beginnings? Well, uh, hospice in the modern era, 
hospice actually was something uh, back with the Crusades. But um, in the modern era, it was started in England um, in probably about um, 1980 or late 70s um, by Dame Cicely Saunders, uh, who was a social worker, then a nurse, then a physician, um, covering all the bases. And um, in Britain, it was um, mainly in institutions and mainly supported by philanthropy, although now the National Health Service does pay some of the cost. Um, but when it came to the United States, it was mostly in home um, and uh, started here in probably about 78, um, so maybe, maybe 77. I have been said to have been the sixth or seventh hospice doctor in the country. Um, and, uh, and I started in 78. Where did you start? Just tell people the kind of place in which you decided this was something you wanted to do for much of your life. What was the place? <laughs> uh, it was a six-bed unit at the Washington Home, um, which is a big um, nursing home in Northwest Washington that um, was kind of the grand dom of Washington uh, long-term care. Um, a very good nursing home, took six beds at the end of a unit and made it a hospice unit. It was all inpatient following the British model at first, later on added home care. Um, it was uh, I mean, I started in 78, but I actually got into it uh, because I was um, looking for a way to um, kind of be a doctor while teaching ethics at George Washington University. And um, I had been sort of doing a triangle of um, a clinical uh, office in Southern Maryland, teaching in D.C. and living in Northern Virginia. And then the um, the oil embargo hit and um all of a sudden it was very hard to travel an hour on each leg of this uh, triangle mm. so um and at just about the same time the practice i was managing in southern maryland was um, able to be sold so uh, i consolidated myself to george washington mm. and i was just a general internist and it turned out that the two geriatricians who had started the new geriatrics program could not stand the hospice program. In fact, one of them could not write a do not resuscitate order. Um, the other one had, could, but had a hard time with it. So the hospice just gave them hives. And um, nice. so I was assigned to take over the hospice unit. Um, all of the nursing home patients who had no prospects of leaving and the uh, clinic patients who had already been seen by the geriatricians and had nothing to improve. So basically, I was dumped on, and it was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it was exactly what I wanted. Um, they were great nurses, great aides, uh, terrific people. Um, I mean, even at the, in the nursing home, the, um, the tenderness and devotion of the aides to um, – their, their residence was just remarkable. And um, I, I just truly loved it. But, you know, I was working I in, in a group that couldn't stand it. Do, do you mind if I ask a question about this? Please. Oh, go ahead. Uh, when you're younger, this sounds terrifying. When you're older, it's incredibly terrifying. And yet those who have experienced it 
can often walk away from it saying it was a tragedy. It was a beautiful tragedy that there are people who facilitate this and uh, provide a lot of comfort. They almost stage the, the end and it can be, uh, I know it's hard to believe it's not what we want, but I remember Queen Elizabeth said of Prince Philip's departure, it was absolutely beautiful. Why do people say that? Let me ask Reverend Lynn. Why, why do people, why would Queen Elizabeth, I know she loved Prince Philip, but uh, why would she say it was absolutely beautiful? Well, because I think most of us who think about death or who have been involved with close family members or doing chaplaincies, as I did in early in my career, people do need a comfort as they start to realize that they are about to die. And it helps if you've talked to lots and lots of people and that you can provide as a nurse, as a doctor, a social worker, a minister, a rabbi, that you can present them with some sense of calm before they die. As well as the loved ones. Exactly. Well, David, um, in underlying the uh, sort of, um, as you describe it, the fear that young people feel and, and people feel maybe as they get even closer to uh, getting older and dying, um, our culture has a tremendous arrogance about this, don't you think? I mean, why don't we talk about the fact that it's a remarkable gift that we should live my mother, who was a doctor, always said it never surprises me that people die. It surprises me that with all of the possibilities, we should live. Your, your mom was a doctor? Yeah. Well, what kind of doctor, if you don't mind my asking? She was a general physician until um, I was in high school when she went back and got radiology certification. So she became a breast cancer uh, radiologist. Wow. But, um, you know, in... In earlier cultures, in our own traditions, uh, there was much more um, recognition that life was tenuous and that it was a gift to have every day. Um, and in, in that kind of a context, um, living well as long as possible is a wonderful goal recognizing that it is always as long as possible. I mean, we don't want a Shakespearean play to go on for indefinitely. We are pleased that it ends after four or five acts. And in the same way, our lives have their course. And you know, at the time that hospice arrived, there was tremendous arrogance and enthusiasm for medical care. So people who chose hospice in the late 70s, early 80s, were thought to be very weird. And you're talking about the doctors and the nurses who No, no, the patients. Oh. Because they were giving up on the possibility that there would be a cure around the corner and right. they would get yeah. to live yeah. longer. Yeah. Why don't you explain the two things about hospice that 
in theory, are still required. One is this idea that you're giving up any uh, efforts uh, at curative work, whatever that means. And then second, that you had a prognosis of living no longer than six months. But both of those really have no meaning because they're kind of undefined legislatively or through regulation. Am I right? Well, they they have the meaning that each hospice gives them and hospice as a whole. So the giving up on curative treatment has come to mean not to have expensive, intrusive uh, medical uh, things happen. And uh, it doesn't really mean curative because obviously if there was something that truly could cure your condition, nobody would take hospice. But um, so it has to mean something. And the meaning that it practically has is that you are giving up um, kind of um, extensive surgeries, um, uh, risky chemotherapies, um, uh very, you know, very expensive drugs. Um, and For just a couple of extra months. Well, yeah, I mean, until recently, the average length of a hospice stay was two weeks. Um, now that more and more hospices are taking in elderly people with um, degenerative illnesses rather than cancers or something like that, um, the average length of stay has extended to maybe six or seven or eight weeks. It's never been anywhere close analog. to six months. Doctor, do we see any analog with the right to life movement and hospice that the people who are call themselves pro-life uh, would be anti-hospice? Well, there has always been an undercurrent of concern that hospice providers were killing people um, earlier than they would otherwise have died. Um, so some of the anti-euthanasia folks have been very suspicious of hospice. On the other hand, the Catholic Church, um, virtually all faith traditions have, have welcomed hospice, um, in part because all of the major faith traditions recognize that uh, there is a death in store, and it, the dying doesn't have to be any more awful than it has to be. Um, so, you know, to the extent that people can be comfortable and supported and their families can be supported, um, they're very much in favor. That New Yorker article points out that a number of I don't hospices, think we've mentioned the, the New Yorker article. So what yeah. is what um is, Yeah, there was an article in the New Yorker about, what, Barry, a week ago? Correct. That, um, Where that, you're mentioned, you're, you're in that article. Yeah. Um, but she did a lot of digging. She found a lot of um, really outrageous practices. And Barry said earlier that, um, you know, this has become commonplace. I don't know that. Nobody knows what the rate is of these outrageous practices. Um, the hospice uh, service line <laughs> is now dominated by a couple of for-profit companies so everybody worries without much evidence, I mean, in either direction, that um, there's a lot of um, at least sloppiness and to a certain extent um, a malicious behavior uh, going on in hospice circles. Let me ask you this, though. If 
if we do know, for example, that people are now searching for elderly people with long-term illnesses, doesn't it, wouldn't it be likely to believe that there's a widespread sense that if we get these people in here and they're here for eight months and some people are, we'll just make more money. Yeah, uh, I mean, if if you if you're running a hospice that regularly has eight month survivals, you will get in trouble with the feds. That's easy for them to track, and you'll have to pay money back. Um, but if you have, um, you know, a minority, ten or twenty percent of your of your uh, enrollees doing that, um, you won't be bothered. But what hospices do is um, prom- you know, promote people out of hospice when they get to being sort of five months and a little. And that is actually terribly disruptive to the patient and family because hospice is the only place that Medicare provides comprehensive care. So Medicare provides doctors and hospitals and and skilled nursing facilities for a short time after a hospitalization. And assuming you signed up for it, drugs, but... um, they do not provide home health aids and they do not provide in general hospital beds and they do not provide support for the caregiver and they do not provide bereavement services or chaplaincy services, whereas hospice provides it all. And they're supposed to be providing it all, but most hospices actually exist on relying on the family for doing most of the work. So most of the, but, but it still comes as a package. So when a person graduates from hospice, um, all of that falls apart and they've got to go back into the chaotic long-term care system and find a home health agency that will send that will have a person and that is reliable and that they can afford. And then they have to get their drugs delivered and then they have to find a doctor who'll see them. And, you know, they have to put this whole thing back together. And the person isn't well. They're just surviving too long. Um, so the person is, you know, more and more demented or more and more uh, stroked or having worse heart failure, but they just aren't dying on time. And what? so the fact that we don't have a long-term care system in the country um, leads to this um, kind of um, cycling people through hospice. So a person goes off hospice for maybe a couple of months and then they run a fever or they fall and now they're sicker again. And they can go back into hospice. So you can go in and out of hospice. Yeah. What about the person who's, since you said, although most patients are on there in there for six weeks, you could stay six months. If you stay eight months, doesn't the hospice provider say, well, you know, we thought it would be six months, but it turned out to be eight. Or in the case of somebody I know personally, the guy's been in a hospice care for a year and a half. So the feds come in and say, well, we demand money back. Uh, isn't doesn't the response from the hospice say, we just made a mistake. We were told yeah. it'd be six months. Well, how did in, he deal with that? In any one person, that'll be fine. Um, I once wrote a note um, on consulting on a person um, who was in a hospice in Washington, D.C. It's a, kind of a famous note in, in hospice circles. Uh, this 
the patient was um, an elderly woman with heart failure, so bad that she had no discernible blood pressure when she stood up. Luckily, she was all hunched over and somehow managed to shuffle around her small apartment. Um, she was uh, in and out of the hospital two or three times a week before she got into hospice. And hospice put in place um, a volunteer to call her and walk her through taking her meds and made sure she had a low-salt diet and all sorts of things. And she stabilized. And so, as you say, eight months in or something of the sort, um, I was called to see her um, to give a second opinion on her prognosis. And my note was, this patient has no way to show a worsening of condition without being dead. And, um, and, you know, one night she uh, went to bed feeling a little queasy and uh, died overnight. Um, and that patient is not going to cause a hospice any trouble. Um, I mean, they'll get the second opinion so that they can defend themselves against some snoopy person from Medicare. But um, what you get in trouble for is having 60% of your people doing that. And there are some hospices that do that, that have 60% of their patients uh, having 8, 10, 12 months um, so all the hospices have gotten savvy. And as I was saying before, they start discharging people at, you know, five and a half months and then re picking them back up at eight or nine months. Nice. Um, especially if they're in assisted living or a nursing home where it's easy to keep track of them because you're seeing somebody down the hall. So you sure. can, you know, so right. they you cycle people through hospice. For people who are unfamiliar with this, if you're not in Medicare, if you're under the age of 65, what are your options with hospice? And then what are your options with Medicare vis-a-vis uh, -vis nursing homes? Well, the under 65 uh, insurance, you know, commercial insurance, um, almost universally covers hospice. Uh, they may have a few more constraints, but basically they cover hospice. Um, managed care uh, covers hospice. Uh, they do control it more carefully than um, than everybody else. But you know, so if you're in a United plan or a Kaiser plan or something, they're they're eager to use hospice in appropriate cases because it keeps people out of the hospital, which is much more expensive. Um, also, uh, hospice is carved out of managed care. So if you're in a United Healthcare plan and you you're 45 and you end up going into hospice, the cost of hospice is on medic is on um, well 45 wouldn't count I guess but if you're 70 and you go into hospice, Medicare picks up your hospice costs and the United now gets a pittance just 35 dollars a month or so um, to cover your non-hospice um, medical issues. But still, it's so much better deal for them, for the appropriate patients. But Medicare does not cover nursing home care. Medicare covers short-term nursing home placement after a hospitalization for right. something that's like really wound care. Or that's, that's, I think a lot of Americans deny, as we talked about earlier, that this is going to be a problem, which makes it easy for predators to gouge them because they're not prepared. So if you're past 65 and it's time for you to go into a nursing home, who pays for it? You do. 
unless you're poor, in which case Medicaid does. Um, and, 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 and the qualifications for Medicaid are very different in the different states. So in some states, you have to be really, really poor. And in some states like New York, uh, it's much more generous. But uh, basically, you pay until you run out of money and then Medicaid picks you up. And so this is important for Americans to know. We don't think about this because it's not going to happen to us. If we, <laughs> well, well, but we also. Seventy percent of us yeah. need long term care. Seventy yeah. percent of us in old age. And so. Is there insurance that you can get for long term care? Yeah, but the market's really broken. Um, the long term care insurance companies <laughs> made some very seriously bad assumptions back in the 1970s and 80s, and they're still paying for that. Um, <laughs> so they keep raising the premiums. Indeed, uh, the federal program, which is run by uh, John Hancock Insurance, um, has stopped taking applications for two years because they were just getting deeper and deeper into debt. Um, so I, I don't mean to interrupt, but this is something really important that Americans need to know. Yeah. When and you... I've spent the last three years trying to get people to understand that what we most need the government to do is to cover long, long-term care. That it should be on your shoulders and ours to cover a year or two. You should be able to save or buy insurance for the upfront costs. But if you have 20 years of serious disability from a stroke when you're 65, um, that's the thing that will devastate you, your family, your community. <laughs> we need a... What, what does it cost? So I, I, let me just spell this out so it's clear to the American people what we're up against here. If you're middle class, upper middle class, and you need to go into a nursing home, what does it cost usually? The average nationwide is now about $120,000 a year, about $10,000 a month. $10,000 a month. And there's, it's impossible to get, it's impossible to get insurance for that. It's and possible, but you have to be pretty rich. To get that insurance. If you don't have the insurance, you have to be dead broke and on Medicaid for the government to pay for your nursing home. Right. Unless you're a veteran or some other special class. But yeah. And so if you're then if you need to go into a nursing home, if you're all alone or, or if you, you, you don't have. Uh, they will just wind down your life savings. Yep. It's now the. The largest cause of personal bankruptcy. Often not declared because the person has no reason to declare bankruptcy if they have nothing. So they don't actually declare bankruptcy. They just quietly go into Medicaid and, you know, lose the family business, lose the family ranch, uh, lose any legacy to the kids uh, you know, that you haven't already given them. And um, and actually now the um, the state is supposed to go back um, I think it's now five years to see if you gave away a lot of money. So if you're going to give away something, give it away, you know, 10 years ahead of when you're going to need it. Uh, good luck figuring that one out. 
Now, aging in place where you have a <laughs> home aide who comes and visits as opposed to being in a nursing home, is that less expensive or more expensive? Depends on how much you need. About six hours a day of paid help is the break-even point. Um, if you need around-the-clock care, it takes five FTE to provide round-the-clock care. What does five FTE mean? Five, uh, five people, <laughs> five full-time equivalents. Um, so five aides to provide around-the-clock care for somebody who has nobody else. Even if you paid them um, you know, miserable wages and benefits, let's say $40,000 worth of wages and benefits, that would already be 200000 And you have the cost of the house, the taxes on the house, the roof repair, the, the hot water heater goes out, and, and food and medical care. And you know, so it ends up being somewhere on the order of two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand dollars a year if you need around the clock care. So that most of the care in the country Reverend Reverend, it is unconscionable that this conversation is not being had. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody can't eavesdrop on our dinner table conversations. But yes, this is one of the hundreds of issues that are never discussed in any serious way on even the major so-called uh, news programs, because those news programs are obsessed with uh, making predictions about future elections, mm -hmm. making predictions about whether Donald Trump will end up in prison or not, endlessly, endlessly, and ignoring all of these things. I, I remember, uh, just to, to go back a step, um, Jerry Falwell and I were on a lot of television shows. One week, one month in his magazine, he attacked me, which he did a lot, and even Joanne. So there are there are that uh, kind of fringe uh, a group that uh, didn't like either one of us. But the the um, Can I just interrupt you for one second because sure. I, I remember what you said to the Reverend Jerry Falwell. You said. You can make fun of my wife all you want, <laughs> but when you come after me, yeah, yeah, that was pretty much it. That, that was definitely, yeah. I would have said that. I was going to plan to say him that to him on a phone call, but then he died. Uh, but let me let me no, jump in here. Barry. Jump in with this, um, <laughs> David. You, you, we've only brushed the surface of just how bad this is. Hmm. We will double the number of disabled elderly between 2015 and 2035 as all the boomers get into the age of disability. By the time we reach the mid-30s, the average middle-class person will not be able to afford housing, food, and medical care. We face having huge numbers of people who lived in the middle class, homeless on the street in their 90s. I, it is. Well, maybe climate change will take care of that for us. Well, I mean, part, part of my concern over medical aid and dying is because of this coming at us. 
Will we effectively be telling people, do yourself in because we do not care to provide for you. We do not care to feed you or to have a roof over your head. So there's this craziness that with a sweep of my pen, I can write for a $20,000 a month drug and I cannot get you supper. And we are going to have such huge numbers of elderly people who need supper or need a roof over their heads. And we have a medical care system that has grown corpulent. I mean, obese. (laughs) Why is it possible that somebody who gets trained as a physician thinks they can earn $300,000 a year right off? And yet, you know, they're dealing with people who cannot get supper. So we need such a rethinking. You know, in, in 1965, when Medicare passed, and Medicaid for that matter, the average age at death was still under 70. The causes of death were fairly abrupt. So people had, a, on average, a few years of reasonably nice retirement, and then they had a stroke or pneumonia or a heart attack. We had very few people who made it into their 90s. Now, most of us will make it into at least our late 80s. And most of us will have a long period of disability. 70% of us will have long-term care needs. And we have done nothing to make it possible to live decently in that piece of time. Build back better, doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Bernie's version of build back better. Well, Bernie's version of Build Back Better has like one sentence that says that will cover long-term care. It doesn't have any of the infrastructure of realizing that that would double the cost of Medicare and no way to raise that money. So you have to really get to the nuts and bolts of what are you actually going to do? I mean, Bernie's thing is good as a lightning rod. I mean, it creates conversation, but it's not a practical legislation until you really get to figuring out what are you going to use as a threshold? What are you going to promise? Are you going to promise some kind of a big facility in which, yes, you have a roof over your head and, and food, but nothing else. It's just bare survival waiting for death. Or are you going to provide small homes with, you know, 10 to 20 people served by a small group of, um, of aides and nurses Are you going to continue to provide these incredibly expensive drugs to people who live on the streets in their 80s? We have a new drug coming on board for dementia. No one said yet what its pricing is going to be, but it's going to be incredibly high. It's going to be $100,000 a year to slow dementia by a few weeks, maybe a couple of months. And it will meet all the requirements of the FDA. It will be approved. Medicare will pay for it. And all of our Medicare taxes will go up. And no one is saying yet, wait a minute, give me food first. <laughs> right. I, mean, I can't write for food. And Don't take this on an empty stomach. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Um, I, I, how can you take care of somebody with diabetes who has to live on the streets? Mm. What are you going to do in North Dakota in winter? You know, I mean, it's people have just not thought this through. Why are we rebuilding after uh, disasters? Suburban homes, four bedroom houses, 
We should be building lots and lots of senior housing all on one floor, easy to access the refrigerator, easy to use the stove, no, no steps anywhere. That's not even in the HUD stuff. Washington, hmm. D.C. has a requirement that I think it's um, it depends on which kind of building you're building, but 12 or 20 percent of your of your apartments have to be disability adapted. They don't have to be given to people who need them. So one percent of the housing in Washington, D.C. is available to a person in a wheelchair. And, you know, we aren't, we aren't even as you say, we aren't even talking about it. We need to have a way in which. A decent working person in America does not have to be terrified of what will happen to them when they're 80 and 90. And it's mostly a women's issue because men cleverly married women a few years younger Mm -hmm. and the women do the caregiving. But then the woman's all alone. Half of the women past 85 have no one. So we are the ones get dumped into nursing homes that are wholly inadequate. And where's the feminist argument for this? Where's now? I mean, the the degree to which we have ignored this and essentially colluded to try hard not to notice is just amazing. What I find surprising Older people vote. They wield most of the political power in America. Where is AARP? Where is the the person earning seven figures a year from AARP on this? Well, AARP has a very um, ossified way of coming to policy. And they always do the right thing after everything else. So they come to the right policy about 10 years late. Um, And, you know, maybe that's going to have to be okay. But um, the people at AARP agree with me that this is very urgent, but they say that it's more urgent to, first off, stop pharma, which they did a little bit of this last round, and to rescue Social Security. Well, I can't argue with that. I mean, we do have to rescue Social Security. But surely we can do two things or three. Right. You know? uh, but I mean, these incredible arguments over abortion and immigration, which are going nowhere and mm-hmm. completely crowding out dealing with this coming crisis. I mean, I can tell you today that in 12 years, we will have enormous numbers, millions of elderly people, homeless and without shelter or food. If we don't do something in the richest country in the history of civilization. And where was it in the last election? Where was any mention of elder care in the last election? None, not polled, not asked of candidates. I mean, this is one in which if if a thousand people contacted Congress each week on this issue, Congress would act because. No one has asked about this before. People keep thinking that it's a family thing. It's just lightning hit my family. No, no, no. This is built into the way we now live. The fact that we live into old age and we have not developed ways in which people can save money means that we will underpay care workers. We will have 
miserable nursing homes. We will abuse hospice and we will still have millions of people on the street. <laughs> the CEOs of United Healthcare will be worth billions. Sure, they will. And I mean, United and Humana do have their little innovative projects here and there. But, um, you know, I've been working on catastrophic long-term care insurance, insurance that would pick up after a substantial waiting period. So if you were the middle American earning the middle American salary, you'd wait one year and 10 months before the federal coverage would kick in. You would be obliged to have saved, raised enough children, bought insurance, whatever, to cover that upfront cost. And then the government would kick in, not to cover every single thing, but to cover, you know, six hours a day of in-home care. And, you know, that would make a big difference. And everybody, I've, ta I've talked with 300 people one-on-one. -on -one. They all agree that this is the right policy and should have been enacted 40 years ago. And I can't get a sponsor in Congress now. <laughs> how many situation? How many people in the House of Representatives signed on to the bill that you helped to write that Congressman Swazi was promoting? Zero. Swazi alone. Oh. Because Biden said he would not impose any new taxes. And the way we wrote the bill, it's a 0.3% wage tax. Because that's what people can understand. There are other ways to finance it. But financing it in the way you finance Social Security is, is sort of the most understandable. 0.3%. That means that on a income of $100,000, you'd be paying $300 a year for this catastrophic coverage. $300 a year on a $100,000 salary. Your employer would pay $300 a year. And you build a trust fund that could actually pay for catastrophic care. It makes very good sense. It saves Medicare, Medicaid. It, um, there are other things that need to be done. I mean, we need to pay the aid workers, um, you know, a reasonable salary. We need to stop infections in nursing homes. We need to build many more housing that people can live in with their somewhat disabled. You know, there, there are 20 such things that need to be done, but none of it can be done in a sustainable way unless we pay for it. And right now, there is no way to pay for it. It depends entirely on Medicaid, and there's no state, not even New York and California, that can simply double their Medicaid budget. Yes. How does this so, go to other countries? Canada? Other, other countries have taken long-term care as part of their medical care system from the start. So Canada covers long-term care. All of Europe covers long-term care. Even third world countries cover long-term long care. Now, they don't have nearly the number of elders that we have. But, um, but yeah, I mean, they've just built it into their healthcare system. But, I mean, I wouldn't want to actually put long-term care into our healthcare system. The people are too used to making huge amounts of money. Meals on Wheels gets a meal out to people at an average nationwide of $7 a day for two meals a day. Huh. I don't know a doctor who can think about having a $7 a day supper, much less delivering it to the home and having two meals. Now, Meals no. on Wheels was one of my mother's favorite charities. Does that pass your mustard? Does oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
they sure. do good work. And and not everywhere is it called Meals on Wheels, I should say. I mean, it's it's the um, you know, home delivery of food and it can come under a bunch of different names. But there are waiting lists, so for that kind of service in places all over the United States. If you want to have your blood boil, hmm. Google more than a meal, just put it in quotes and you will come to a research project done by Brown University in which they recruited half a dozen cities that had more than a six month waiting list for meal delivery. Six months or more to get food. And then they randomized people into three groups. One group got Meals on Wheels. One group got food delivered by UPS and a microwave. And one group got nothing. And much to your surprise, people do better with food than without it. Let me write that down. (laughs) We want, we want. Not only that, they do a little better to have a friendly neighbor stop by with the food. But how in this country could we have randomized a third of the people to get no food? I mean, it makes my blood boil. Now, they weren't getting no food. They were, you know, getting a neighborhood kid to run down to the 7-Eleven and get them, you know, Coke and a sandwich or something. But they were getting miserable food in an uneven way um, and, you know, not a good healthy diet. Um, so, you know, why isn't that a scandal? How could we in this country have a third of the kids and a third of the elderly unable to count on having food? We, we are the divide between the haves and the have nots have just become so severe. I've been going to my fellow geriatricians saying, do we actually want to be the people who can write for $20,000 a day or a month mm-hmm. drugs for people who can't get supper. We should be raising holy hell because we don't want to be the ones who have to keep doing that. Anyway, that's yeah. my, that's my pitch. <laughs> why aren't the medical schools? Why aren't the doctors? Why isn't the AMA? Ultimately, I mean, much to their credit, the American College of Physicians did endorse the bill and has it as one of their priorities. American Medical Association is so deeply entrenched in self-protection that they just don't get around to being concerned about their uh, patient population. But, But the CDC, the AMA, the CDC doesn't deal with old people. But, but the CDC deals with infections and tragedies. The CDC has very little, I mean, they have very little money. And they just, I mean, they, they, for a long time, they had nobody dealing with elderly. Now they have a small group dealing with dementia. What, what um, I'm saying is, why can't, why can't a Surgeon General declare uh, for-profit health insurance a health risk more dangerous than cigarettes? Good question. I don't know. Talk to the Surgeon General. I mean, yeah. it isn't really that it's it isn't really just the for profit. It's also I mean, because there's some really awful nonprofits and there are some really decent for profits. But it's more the mindset that um, 
you can't deny a person, you know, the latest, greatest hotshot drug, but you can walk away from them not having food and housing. You know, I mean, we have made medical care um, just an infinite entitlement and have forgotten that you probably need food and housing first. (laughs) And at the time we made Medicare an open-ended entitlement, the country was rich. We didn't, and the the divide between the haves and the have-nots was not nearly so severe. Um, We have thinned out the middle class. So we now have lower middle class and poor and upper middle class and rich not very many kind of just decent middle class jobs anymore. So, you know, the steel workers are not very much anymore. The automakers are not very much. So we've lost the sort of anchoring center that um, we had in 65 when we passed Medicare. I mean, we that was a difficult time with the war and all, but but we still had a sense that we were all in it together. Yeah. And now the rich are very skilled at walking past the person on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and not even, I mean, even if you, as a matter of principle, don't just sort of reach in your pocket and hand out money, you don't even mm-hmm. vote to try to reduce that risk. You don't see it as part of your job. You know, we need to we need to be reminding people that we used to all get together to raise the barn. And here we need to all get together to find ways to support long lives. At the beginning of this segment, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn said, you turn on the news and they talk about horse racing the next election, but not what's really important. They will talk about anything except what has to be talked about. Medicare for all. Free health care, free drugs, free well, guaranteed, guaranteed housing and food. I mean, if you can't for 99 percent of your population, get people in housing and food, you're really failing. Most European countries do not have substantial homeless populations. Singapore, of all places, in 1984, started requiring that all residential housing, newly built or major renovations, had to be disability adapted. All. So now they have no problem finding a place for somebody who has to use a walker or a wheelchair. Um, <clears throat> but we don't even have that on the agenda. We don't even know how to talk about it. As you were saying earlier, lots of people think Medicare covers this until their family goes bankrupt. And then they think it's their personal tragedy. Yeah. They don't think that, no, this was the way the society's built. What did I do wrong? What did, what, what did I do wrong? They blame the victims. You should have planned for this. Well, or, you know, you just had very bad you know, misfortune. It's sort of like, you know, having bought the wrong stock and having it go belly up or something, you know, having put all your money in cryptocurrency right now, I guess. But I mean, people still think of it as their personal tragedy, not that. No, actually, we built it to really nail you. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> and we need to change that. If everybody listening to you 
would write a letter to their congressman and their senator asking their position on how to finance elder care. The first 20 won't get any, I mean, they'll get a mealy mouth, you know, Mm -hmm. we're thinking about an answer. By about 20, they start looking for answers. And there are good answers. I think what we need to do on this show is select specific Congress people who sit on specific committees and write to them, not so we don't dilute. We're a small little show. So sure. We don't don't want to dilute finance or help finance or the health um, education, labor and pensions committee in the Senate and in the house, it's ways and means or energy and commerce. And, you know, find out who in your area is on energy and commerce or ways and means and on the Senate side, finance or um, or help the health, education, labor and and pensions. And um, you're right that it's better to push those guys. But what we really need is for it to be inescapable in our media. That, you know, the the poll about, you know, what issues people are upset about includes the costs and burdens of long-term care. And just, I mean, we asked this, we pay, we've got some funding and paid for it in the 2016 election and showed that it was a latent terror for most voters, the costs and burdens of long-term care. And it didn't matter if you were a Clinton voter or a Trump voter. The rates were almost equal. That people thought that this was very important, that it was um, very much on their mind and so forth. They just hadn't turned the corner to make it political. It was still personal. Yeah. So before you go, and this was great, and thank you, and, and please come back. And I just want to thank the Reverend for bringing you on. Absolutely. And I want to thank the Reverend for keeping it clean. Yeah. I, <laughs> Except for I, the I, monkeys. The monkeys are doing yeah, the monkeys, I, I didn't plan well or I would have had a, a better background here. One that gave the appearance that I was in a resort in the Gulf of Mexico, but I, I didn't have time to change it. <laughs> I should mention the Reverend Barry Dunford mm-hmm. uh, for nearly a quarter of a century ran Americans United for separation of church and state. He is both an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, and he's also a lawyer, member of the Supreme Court Bar. And this question is for you. When you look at most of the major problems in this country, including this one, it's greed, right? It gets down to greed. It absolutely does. And when people want to talk about how to deal with uh, inflation, they ought to Look very, very carefully at the inflation of corporate big wigs funding and the paucity of increase in what they pay their workers themselves. I mean, it is a scandal. It is almost never talked about when the Republicans criticize Biden for having uh, inflation increase and you ask them, well, what would you do? They wouldn't. They can't tell you. They wouldn't have an answer because all the fat cats that give them those millions of dollars to run the next time would be disadvantaged if Republicans told the truth and said inflation is all, almost all, about greed. And there's something 
in every religious tradition and throughout humanism that says greed is evil. Greed is a really bad thing. And we ought to get back to that. Yeah. This is the last time I'm going to say this this year. One third (laughs) of inflation, one third of inflation is rent. Yeah. Third. And half the people who rent live at or below the poverty line. Yeah. So whatever you're watching that passes for news, uh, you're not being told what's important. The article in The New Yorker is written by who? A woman named Ava Kaufman, K-O-F-M-A-N. And it really, it talks about a lot of very specific cases that have gotten very little national exposure. This is really a blockbuster article. This is the kind of thing that they should be talking about on every conceivable network talk show. I don't know. I'm going to ask Joanne. I don't know that this woman who wrote it is it been on any television shows? Well, bring her on. Bring bring her on my show. It won't break her record. She'll still won't be on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. She did. Well, she did a remarkable job of uh, investigating this, following leads and networking. It still doesn't tell us sort of what proportion of hospice programs are behaving so badly, but it does show that a reasonable investigative reporter could find lots of examples pretty quickly. When I first started in hospice in 1978, we were very concerned to, we had prosecutors who were looking to prosecute us for homicide. So we were documenting everything. We were very careful. We went out to see patients in the middle of the night, burial attest for how many times mm-hmm. I got up at three in the morning to go see some patient, you know, that um, the nurse was nervous about. And boy, now doctors want nine to fives and um, they leave nurses, you know, hanging out there in limbo and um, or aides, even, you know, not even a nurse, but just an aide um, dump lots and lots of work on the family, um, leaving the families feeling very uh, scared. You know, we would never have allowed a family to feel scared. I mean, I used to give families my beeper number and said, you know, um, if you have time, go through the regular process. But if you're really scared, just call me. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I, I talked once at a conference about not using feeding tubes for people who stopped eating. And the prosecutor for Long Island stood up and said, if you were in my jurisdiction, I'd prosecute you for murder. Um, you know, it, it ruins your day to for a prosecutor to say that what you're doing and talking about publicly um, he would consider murder. Um, so, you know, we were very careful. We were very thoughtful. We were rather missionary and we could do anything. I mean, it was amazing. We, we could get airlines to give us tickets so that some guy could go home and see his mother before he died. I mean, the amazing stuff we did. But now it's just a business. You know, it's just a business. It takes care of half of the Medicare people who die. Um, and um, the executives of those companies are making money hand over fist. This country doesn't mm. right from wrong anymore. No, it does not. The it Reverend does not. 
Reverend Barry W. Lynn for a treasure trove of his appearances on radio and television shows and his writings. Go to barrywlynn.com and follow him on Twitter. His handle is barrywlynn.com. And why don't you uh, say goodbye to our very special guest for us? Oh, but first I get to say, oh, yeah. because, he, because he hasn't, that uh, remember that his books are coming out in the spring paid to piss people off <laughs> his, his memoirs of fighting porn or, or defending porn fighting the draft and keeping religion out of government so i can't wait i cannot wait <laughs> i cannot wait to read it thank you thank you reverend stay at absolutely it. only good trouble and, and wrap up with the good doctor how do people contact you yes I have um, two websites. One's called medicaring.org and the other is drjoannelynn.org. Uh, the Dr. Joanne Lynn one deals mainly with the financing of long-term care. The Medicaring one is much more general and has uh, some briefing papers on how to go about talking to uh, legislators. Um, my email is disarmingly simple, uh, drjoannelynn at gmail.com. <laughs> and we're just dr. And my name is correctly spelled J-O-A-N-N-E and L-Y-N-N. So, oh, it's right there on the screen. Yeah. So, um, yep. So um, if you're willing to um, annoy your congressperson or your senator, please uh, be in touch and have a look at um, drjoannelynn.org. It'll teach you all you need to know about how to contact your senator or your congressman or both. And, um, you know, we've got to raise our voices. Yep. Mm. Thank you so much. Amen. 